Hey friends, welcome to Boca, a podcast exploring the ever-blurring lines between the personal and business lives of professional photographers. This is your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm happy that you can join me today in connecting with photographers and entrepreneurs as we discuss photography, business, and oh yeah, that sometimes messy thing that we call life. This podcast is brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back for yet another episode of the Boca Podcast, and I'm here with a new friend of mine, Scott, and, and you were helping me pronounce your last name before we started recording here, but it's Chathinho, is that correct? Yeah, that's about as close as we get. It's an ongoing <laughs> okay. family debate, so my dad says it one way, my mum says it another way, and then people in his village say it all kinds of ways, so we're going with that for now. Fair enough. Well, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to spell it correctly, at least uh, when we post this episode <laughs> online. But I, as I was saying to you before we got started, I really appreciate you making time to do this episode today. I'm kind of geeked out, nerded out here, because I'm really excited about this very specific topic that we're going to get into today, which is the importance of, of actually having photographers in our industry that serve, I hesitate to say it, but just for the sake of simplicity, low end of the market. And when I say low end of the market, you know, we're used to hearing, at least in the conversations in the American industry, the U.S. industry, uh, about wedding photographers who are charging, or at least they're wanting to charge three, four, five, ten thousand dollars uh, for a wedding, for example, when the reality is the majority of the market actually exists or the potential market exists on the other end of the spectrum. And, and nobody is proactively, uh, number one, addressing this topic, at least until I saw your your article. And we'll get to that here in, a, in just a little bit. But then there doesn't seem to be a, a proactive solution, or at least many photographers addressing or creating a proactive solution for that in the market. So we're going to talk about this today, both from a philosophical standpoint and also make it practical for those who might be interested in going after that side of the market. But again, thank you for making time for us. And speaking of time, we normally start off the, the podcast with something that we call a technique for time. And this very simply is is designed so that those who maybe are just listening in for a few minutes are still able to walk away with something of value. I'm curious if there's something that you do in your work week as a photographer to to create space for yourself to function a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, a constant battle, to be honest. Um, I've recently inherited three children uh, as part of my new my new life, I guess. That's so awesome. I've got a girlfriend who's got three kids and I've taken them on. So I didn't have much free time before and i have a lot less now so <laughs> yeah. it's very difficult if you're children you need to justify having time to yourself you could be spending it with them sure so the only time that i spend by myself is i either cycle or i run to my studio each day and that's about a half hour trip depending on which one i go for and then i try and go to the gym for an hour a day and to be honest that's pretty much the only time that i get to myself so it's trying to find something which i can justify that i have to do and is like positive at the same time. My gym session each day takes priority over everything else. Yeah. Um, and for one hour a day, no matter what's happening, no matter what I'm shooting, where I'm shooting, I always go to the gym for an hour. So that's my sort of my time, I guess. And do you do you do that gym time first thing in the morning, or is there a particular time of the day that you do that each day? Almost always first thing in the morning. Okay. Uh, there's just there's far less chance of anything else getting in the way of it. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, I work better as well. I go to the gym first and if for whatever reason i've got a shoot that starts particularly early or i've got to be at the other side of the country or in a different country i sometimes move it to the end of the day but then it's a real like it's the first thing i do as soon as i finish work i'll go direct to the gym from work 
in my gym kit. So there's no sort of like backing out of it last minute or whatever. And, you know, working out and whatever that might look like for those listening in, it, it gives you really the biggest bang for your buck, if you will, the, the, the most benefit physiologically, mentally, uh, or psychologically. And especially within, I mean, you can, you can work out my, my normal workout consists of about a 20 minute, 20 minute high interval session on the elliptical machine. And, yeah. um, and then incorporating a little bit of calisthenics when I can as well, a uh, little bit of heavy lifting, uh, or right now I've, I've got a, a wrist injury, so I'm, I'm doing leg presses on a machine, but, uh, it, it doesn't have to take a whole lot of time, but as you pointed out, the the benefit uh, for clarity of mind in particular, we, there's the obvious physiological benefit, but the mental benefit is significant as well, especially if you're willing to uh, have the discipline to incorporate that first thing in the day. So I love that you point that out. Yeah, I mean, if I've got a really bad day and I know I've got a particularly difficult meeting or, you know, we've got debt collectors to sort out for somebody who's not paid, for example, and I know that I'm going to be really riled up, I move my gym session back until after that. Mm. That's my sort of de-stressing. So yes. a couple of weeks ago, we had to deal with some debt collectors, some people hadn't paid us. And it really winds me up on a level which is just disproportionate. <laughs> so I'm like, do you know what? We'll move the gym session down until after I've had that conversation. Yeah. Because then by the time I've got back again, I've reset. But it's definitely good. I mean, I used to shoot weddings when I started out. And I mean, a lot of people have mirrorless cameras nowadays, but I was shooting with a massive, you know, 70 to 200 right. lens. You know, you got speed lights, battery packs on you, yep. couple, two, three camera bodies. My back was in pieces by the end of it. I was in so much pain. Um, I did a lot of Asian weddings as well with a friend of mine. And they're three days long, right. 12 to 14 hour days. And you finish that and your back's in pieces. And if you don't go to the gym and work out regularly, you just can't sustain it. It's just not something, you know, it's a very physical job in that side of photography. It, it is. It is. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of photographers, especially wedding photographers, as you pointed out, can relate to this. The The challenge many times is just the uh, having enough motivation to, to actually do it, to follow through and then also to, to work out consistently. But a lot of times you just have to push through understanding that the benefit is on the other side of that. Even this morning, honestly, for me, I was questioning whether or not to go ahead and go to, to my workout and, and I just, I went through and pushed through and, and even just about five minutes or so, or even less into the, that workout, I was already feeling better. There is, there is something to be said for understanding the, the true benefit on multiple levels on the other side of what can be challenging or just annoying or frustrating to even make happen at times. Uh, there is something very, very significant to it. So I, I love that reminder and I appreciate you starting us off with that. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of being present or centered or focused what is something that enables you despite everything going on in your life both personally and professionally to be a bit more present a bit more centered especially amidst the noise of you know social media and and the news and and maybe the actual physical noise of of having kids around and what what does that look like for you yeah i mean focusing for me i am I definitely needed some sort of medication as a child to keep me still. And back then it wasn't a thing in the UK, so yeah. it didn't happen. But I was absolutely off my rocker. I was hyperactive. I was running around everywhere. It wasn't until recently that my girlfriend pointed out, she's like, what did you do as a kid? I was like, well, before school at 5am, I went swimming for two hours. I went to school, got back from school. I did a two hour cycling session with my team. Then we went swimming late at night for two hours and wow. did that seven days a week, apart from Saturday and Sunday, where I did four hours cycling per day because we had more time. Wow. And I was like, and I was still pretty hyperactive. So uh, <laughs> my, my main thing to stay present and focused is to make sure I'm actually quite exhausted. Yeah. If I'm too well rested, I can't work. There's a, 
I have to have a certain level of fatigue for me personally to be able to sit still and actually do some work. So just a little bit. I was born with a bit too much energy, I think. But in terms of, you know, staying focused and staying centered in the work I'm doing, I mean, social media is a real sap on that sort of thing. So I don't have Facebook. I deleted that. Wow. Um, I don't believe there's any value for photographers who aren't chasing the 50 plus market in Facebook. I don't think the time put in to money received out of it is at all beneficial. I don't use Twitter. I don't use LinkedIn. The only social media I have is Instagram. Okay. And I should caveat with that. I work as a commercial photographer, so I shoot ad campaigns, mostly in food um, and all the people I need to know on there. So I try and remove distractions more than anything. And I find that helps a lot in just sort of, you know, staying on it. You, things like, um, obviously, I write for F-stoppers, um, but I don't read F-stoppers that much. I will read it maybe once a week as like a Sunday newspaper. And that sort of, you know, is having these little rules in place that mean that I don't get waylaid and, you know, distracted all the time and that I stay on task. But I say the main thing is just knowing that I've got to make enough money each month. You know, that motivates you to stay <laughs> in the zone, as it were, when you're trying For to work, sure. I think. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, you, you that, so there are multiple talking points we can kind of touch on here. One one that's particularly interesting to me that you brought up is something that I think would benefit most, if not all of us as business owners, many of us who are working, whether it's in an office or just in our home office. You mentioned the the benefit of actually being exhausted at the end of the day. You know, there's a lot of conversation about not being able to to kind of ease our mind enough to to go to sleep at night. And yeah, yeah. we we have the the certainly the benefit of living in first world culture where things and I mean if you compare it to a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, or a hundred thousand years ago, whatever it might be, are, are quite easy in comparison. And so we don't, we aren't necessarily exhausting our, our abilities as, as human beings, certainly on a physical level many times if we're just sitting at an office desk all day long. Or, and that in and of itself, I think, is reason, as we were talking about earlier, to, to make sure that we're moving more consistently. But there's something to be said for being physically exhausted to the extent that you would naturally fall asleep at night. And, um, and that would certainly be beneficial. I know that it's not a cure-all per se, uh, but I think there is something to that. The other thing that you alluded to, which is something that has even been on my mind this morning, is the significance of dialing in that the amount of or the quality of the content that we consume, because it is easy in this day and age to consume so much of it. And then, of course, the question yeah. at the end of the day is, uh, number one, how is that actually benefiting us and just in general? And, and even more specifically, what are we actually doing with that information? How actionable is it? And how relevant is it even to our overarching goals or something that we talk about here in the podcast, the big picture view? Uh, so I think that's a really great reminder as well. And then, and then that, that end motivation of, hey, I've got to make this thing work. I, I love that. It's simple, but it's so true. And I think we can all <laughs> relate to that in some form or fashion. But you mentioned you did mention reading. I'm curious if you do actively read uh, out, you know, outside of reading blogs or any news or social media. Do you are there particular books that you enjoy reading? Is there one in particular that stands out in your mind? I don't, but I did. I used to read a lot. Okay. Bizarrely enough, my background, I've got an undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in sports science, which is really useless <laughs> in my current <laughs> career path. But it was fun at the time. But I used to read a lot. And then when I realized that I didn't want to be seen as being a jock, I thought, you know what, I'll start reading some, you know, some nice literature and you know, make myself a bit more well-read. And I really struggled with reading. And I ended up with a job years ago. And it was a very, the guy really fancied himself as a bit of an entrepreneur. And there was like a reading list each week. 
and all these you know self-help guides and how to be successful and all this sort of jargon and it was all completely useless you know the the one thing which all these books missed was you have to be good at what you do so it's great going off there trying to be the best entrepreneur you can be, but if you rubbish at your trade, it, it just doesn't it doesn't fill in that void. So I tend not to read. I also know my limitations, so I can only know so many things. And I just think each time I put something useless into my head, yeah, something useful might fall out. So I get to the uh, the ATM machine, put my card, and I forget my pin because I've just remembered that the three best strap, uh, you know points of marketing are to do this, this and this. <laughs> and I can't yeah. get to my cash or something, you know. So it's yeah. I, especially on Instagram, I, I see a lot of photographers spending a lot of time talking about hustle and mm. being an entrepreneur, but they're forgetting that the photographers first. And if they haven't got the skill set there and they haven't got those years and years of experience and you know technical know-how, it doesn't matter how good your business is, you're going to fall down in a couple of years' time when people just go, do you know what? The marketing was great. We found the adverts. We booked him, but he just didn't didn't deliver what we needed. Hmm. So, currently not reading. Might change in the future. I seem to go through phases and very all or nothing. So, if I am reading, I'll be reading a mountain of books. But right now, I have the occasional scan of the internet on a Sunday, just to sort of try and keep myself a bit relevant. Sure. Um, but even with like the news, I tend not to pay too much attention at the moment. The, when I'm in the UK, and we're going through something called Brexit, which is where we're leaving the EU. Right. Um, which doesn't affect me in the slightest because I have dual nationality because I'm Spanish as well. But for everyone else in this country, it's going to be an absolute disaster for six months afterwards, regardless of the whether it's good in the long term or bad. Mm. So mm. it's all very doom and gloom and negative. And I just think there's nothing I can do to change it. Why fill my mind with that sort of stuff? It's not conducive to me moving forward in any way. So I just try and put my blinkers on and play dumb. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, and I can I can relate to that, actually. I mean, there there is... And of course, we all know the tendency of media to focus on the bad. And so things in many cases, as bad as they may be, seem even worse than they even are. Uh, there is this kind of doom and gloom mentality that the media takes to to what they report or more specifically how they report it. Um, I tend to avoid news the majority of the time as well because of that focus and because, as you pointed out, the effect that it has on me is not particularly positive and much of it I can do little about. Awareness, I think, is important. But then, again, to our our conversation, what are we doing with that awareness too? So um, I, I can relate on that regard. I, I think it's really interesting, though, that you're highlighting something here again and kind of emphasizing what we were just talking about, which is what are we actually doing um, with our business, I mean, certainly when it comes to technique and then actually running a healthy business when it comes to the numbers, it's easy to post on our stories or in, you know, a post on Instagram, something about hustle or some inspirational quote and try to play. Uh, and we have, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk. He's somebody that we've talked about a lot here on the podcast, but you see a yeah. lot of inspirational so-called inspirational posts from him and i mean he he's actually lived up to what he's talking about so i feel like he can legitimately do that but uh, i think that photographers and i've been guilty of this frankly as well can begin to kind of take on that role of trying to inspire others when the reality is that we need to be putting more time and effort into running a better business certainly developing technique as photographers but also becoming a better business owner and and that's a really great reminder at the end of the day i think we need to do more and maybe try to be the inspirational, the source of inspiration, maybe a, a little bit less. Nothing wrong with encouraging people, but uh, if we can't actually back it up uh, effectively with our technique and our, and our business acumen, uh, I think we need to be asking, uh, maybe taking a step back from that a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually follow Gary Vaynerchuk a lot. I quite I read his book. Is it Jab Jab Left Hook or something? Like jab that? Jab Jab Right Hook. Yeah. 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 That's the one. There we go. I read it years ago. I thought yes. it was really interesting. Really good. Very good. You know, you watch one of his YouTube videos and you feel absolutely pumped. And then I walk out into the studio and I'm photographing marmalade on toast. <laughs> and it doesn't, you know, yeah. it's great. He's like, yeah, I'm going to start this great business. And it's like, actually, what I need to learn to do today is photograph a completely high shine chrome ball without any reflections in it. And yeah. no amount of hustle is going to help me with that. <laughs> I need to know what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's, um, the part of the industry that I work in, no amount of hustle and business sense is going to get you past the fact that you have to be good. Hmm. And it's, you know, it, it doesn't matter what my business model is. Assuming I don't spend more than I make, my work will come in because for what I do, people will either need my service and my style of work or they won't. Hmm. Yeah. And it's just whether I'm in favor that month or whether, you know, contacts have more relevance than any marketing strategy that i pull out it's who who i annoyed last and who i made friends with last at the bar it's that's much more important to me than any particular fancy you know email campaign that i've sent out which will have i've only i think i've only ever once got a major ad campaign off the back of an e-shot and that was simply by luck when somebody in the office happened to be looking for a photographer and somebody else in the office received my e-shot at the exact moment hmm. and went here's one we'll phone him right now that's the only time it ever sort of, you know, panned out for me. But I guess it depends on where you're working in the industry as well. You know? it, it's true. And I, actually, I was going to mention that you're because you're a commercial photographer. I think there's an interesting difference to note here, which is that uh, I think there's a bit more uh, attention paid to to quality and technique in the commercial world. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, then, for example, wedding photography. I mean, something we talk about actually quite a bit here on the podcast, the reality is that most wedding clients, and I shot weddings for over 10 years myself, so I, I, have, I can speak from experience, but most wedding clients, and in many cases, portrait clients as well, don't really understand what a good photograph is. Subjectively, they might like a particular image, but they can't speak to why. And the, the, the attention to detail that we as photographers pay many times to photographs, they're certainly not going to be paying that same level of attention to detail. And yet in the commercial world, it seems like that attention to detail is largely what drives the game. Is that not the case? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like for weddings, for example, I always found that people booked me if they liked me. Um, and I used to shoot them often without seeing my wedding work at all. Right, right. Whereas if they didn't like me, there's no way they want me to be with them for an entire day of the most important day of their life if they think that guy's a bit of a dick. You know, <laughs> yeah. not, they, they don't want that. You know, it's a lot about who you are, who you present yourself as, and what they think looks good. And, you know, I get some requests when I used to do that sort of work for certain portraits. I was going, God, that'd look awful. But do you know what? If you want it, you have it. Whereas in the commercial world, I guess you get booked because you're in fashion, you're in style, you know, your style is currently what people want to see. Hmm. Or you happen to have shot something big recently, you know, and someone went, oh, you shot for that last campaign. We'll have you for our campaign. We liked it. We saw it. You know, it's very, there's not a great deal that you can do in terms of getting new work, new clients, apart from producing new and better work. It's quite a pure business form in some ways. It's like, you know, the, the rate that everyone charges is very similar everyone expects to pay a high rate for your work plus license fees. Right. There's no haggling and negotiating. Sometimes they'd be like, oh, do you know what? We're 500 short on the budget. Would you still be interested sort of thing? But it's not the sort of thing where people come in to negotiate rates with you. Hmm. It's, it's a very different world, I guess. But I think that can apply to a lot of other fields in photography as well. I don't think it's just the commercial world. I think weddings can be like that as well. When I chose my wedding price, 
I picked a price which was the most common spend in the UK. So when I used to shoot them regularly, I chose £1,200 because that is what most people spend on their wedding photography. Right. And at the time I thought, well, do you know what? If most people spend that, if someone's parents go, you've got £2,000 for a wedding, they'll book a £2,000 photographer. If they go, you've got £500, they'll book a £500 photographer. Yeah. And because more people have £1,200 given to them, I'm more likely to get booked. So I don't know. It's, it's a difficult one. And I think the difficulty is worrying about what other people are doing. And there's that fear that someone else is doing something for less and working more or, you know, it's, it's very easy to be watching what everyone else is doing because of social media. I think a lot of the fear, with, especially with weddings, when they see these um, Facebook adverts going wedding photography for $300. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was still happening, just nobody knew about it because it'd be more word of mouth or flies through the door. It wasn't as in your face, I guess. It's true. Yeah. Well, and I think there's importance to awareness about what is going on in your local market or even a, in a broader market. Uh, but there's also a simple reality. And of course, we're going to get into this again in, in just a little bit of the way that the market functions and no amount of, of ego driven conversation by us photographers about our art and the significance of it and that you know, it demands a particular price point is going to change the reality, which is that some people only make enough to afford a $500 photographer or a $1,200 photographer. And in fact, that's a really large segment of the, the population. And so sure, yeah. somebody has to serve that, that segment. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a bit. But you mentioned, obviously, that you're a commercial photographer. How long have you been in business thus far? Oh, I think as a sole source of income, not that long, about five years, perhaps. Okay. And five did- years, five years. I've been saying the same number for a few years. So I might not be right now. Might be- <laughs> okay. <laughs> People keep saying, how long have you been doing photography for? Like eight years. And I went, did you say that five years ago? Right. Like, yeah, it might be a bit longer now. So, <laughs> You mentioned starting in, in weddings or did you start in commercial and weddings or how, what, what, what's the backstory? No, no, I start, I, well, I had a bit of a, a period in my life when I had nothing to do. It was between my undergraduate degree and my master's. It was a bit of a loose end. So I bought a film camera, a yeah. Veronica 645. Yes. Because I, I knew nothing about photography. This was back in 2011. Yeah. No, 2010. 2010. I bought a Veronica. And the guy in the shop gave me three rolls of film. So I shot them and then realized that no way to develop black and white films. So I had to learn how to do it myself. Wow. So off I went to find a dark room, found a dark room, developed it, realized they were all absolutely awful uh, <laughs> and just carried on. And I, uh, I shot film for ages because I realized I couldn't afford a good quality digital camera. Sure. Now, in hindsight, that made no difference whatsoever because my photos were rubbish anyway. Um, <laughs> I'd have been far better off to have bought a digital camera, which was not as good. Yeah. But in the arrogance that beginners have, it was uh, <laughs> all important that I had a medium format camera. Um, I must have read it in a forum somewhere and gone, that's exactly what I need. Right, right. So I did my master's and halfway through my master's, I realized that I hated sports science and I wanted to be a photographer instead, but I didn't really know anything about what a photographer was. So I went back home to my mum's in Leicester um, and I walked down a, a very small street and found a studio on Green Lane Road called Rouse Studios. And I walked into it with a box of darkroom prints, which were really bad. And I was like, can you give me a job? <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> no, mate. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So I went back again and again. And eventually I was like, I'll tell you what, you can come to this wedding with me and I'll give you 20 quid to hold my lights down. Wow. I was like, go on then. So that's probably like, what, $30 or something yeah. like that? Yeah. So I spent the day there trying to make sure his light stand didn't get stolen at this uh, slightly dicey wedding. Okay. 
finished it and then a few weeks later it's like all right you can come back again i'll give you a camera for the day you know you can choose a wedding for me i'll give you 50 pounds and then it was you know i'll give you 100 pounds and then it was right you can second shoot it with me now i'll give you 200 pounds for the day and i was doing that whilst working a nine to five and um on the side i had aspirations of being a music journalist uh which were far greater than my talents allowed me to be so i used to go on (laughs) tour with bands um lots of music festivals and all that sort of thing okay you know, I was working in London at the time as well. And I just thought, Do you know what? I don't like my day job. And I thought, actually, I don't like working. That's my, uh, <laughs> but then all consensus is I don't really want to have a job. So I started doing headshots for people. I was like, this is good. I can charge a hundred pounds for a headshot. You know, you get people coming in. So I started renting a studio space out. Um, I still had a day job at this point as well, but I used to tell them that I was working from somewhere else whilst I was shooting in my studio. Um, and then I left my day job the day that I got my first ad campaign shoot. Um, I just thought, you know what, if I leave it now, this is a good time to turn pro because there's a weird point in photography where if you have anything you're doing apart from photography, you won't ever be able to get good enough to be a photographer. And a lot of people get stuck there. I think 10 years going, well, I'm part-time, I'm part-time, but until you can go 12 hours a day, I'm learning photography and practicing photography. It's very difficult to make that leap and you know really push yourself out there because by the time you get home at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening, you're absolutely shattered. Whereas if you're waking up at 6am, 7am, just cracking on and, you know, got your books out, you're learning, you're practicing. It's a much easier way to get into the industry. But obviously with that comes the pitfalls of having no steady income. So did that for a few years. And then one day I was, I was doing reasonably well at portrait work and I shot my now girlfriend's book cover because some of the photographer had messed it up and it was a cookbook. And after that, she was like, oh, do you want to shoot some food for me as well, actually? So I started doing that. I really got into food photography uh, because my parents both worked in the food industry when I was a kid. We had a lot of seafood. My dad used to be a fisherman. And I got really got into it. And then I realized there's this massive industry that I didn't even know existed Hmm. in food photography. And in the UK, apart from cars, it's probably the highest paying industry in photography. And just the volume of work that goes through it as well is just unbelievable. And I, I was really naive. I had no idea what was going on. First time dealing with ad agencies, I didn't know who anybody was, what they did, who I was supposed to be talking to. I was asking the wrong questions to the wrong people. But I think a lot of people in the ad agencies were also new as well and they didn't know what they were doing. So, you know, <laughs> sort of, we, all, we all bumbled along and pretended we all knew yeah. what we were doing yeah. uh, until we actually did. And yeah, I sort of just went along with that. And then in recent years, it's, you know, really taken off. We fly all around the world, shoot ad campaigns, shoot some big worldwide campaigns. And then we're still doing, you know, some more local work as well. And it's, yeah, sort of how I got into it and it just sort of evolved as it went along and I was always willing to go, do you know what? I'm going to stop doing what I've been trying to do and move on to something else. So one day with the bands, I went, do you know what? Bands don't have any money. And if they do, they're so famous, they expect it for free. Right. And, they, you know, they only need the shoots doing once every few years and we've got a new album out or whatever it is. So that's not a sustainable business and I want to be able to not go to work anymore. So I instantly went, I don't shoot bands anymore. And then... A few years later, I went, weddings are exhausting. I'm absolutely shattered by mm. Monday morning. Yep. I have to take the whole week off to recover and edit before the next wedding. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to lose all my weekends. I don't want to be working so hard for, I was only getting £1,200 a day for weddings. So it wasn't really the same ballpark as commercial work. So I ended up going, right, that's it. No more weddings. We'll stop doing that. I think it's really important to be able to do that as well and just go, you know, streamline what you're doing whereas now i'm just a food photographer that's all i do food adverts your i mean your website actually and by the way for those listening in it is scott 
Chuchino, but it's it's spelled C H O U C I N O. Scott Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up again, but <laughs> Chuchino.com. <laughs> um, I'm doing my best here, and then same thing on Instagram. Of course, we'll link to these in the show notes as well. But um, you mentioned the significance of focus. Uh, you also mentioned the significance of of actually taking the leap. And just you got to at some point, you got to go all in. Would you say that that's your biggest piece of advice for somebody who is getting started or what comes to mind over the years of being a photographer, what you've learned? What would that piece of advice be that you'd give to somebody if you had a few seconds? I would say that every time I've taken a massive risk, it's made a huge difference. So I left my day job with no savings, Hmm. which seems in hindsight really stupid. But it meant that in month one, I had to make £2,000. And I've never worked as hard in my life as I did in that first month going, if I don't make £2,000, not only do I not have a job, I won't have a house. So, you know, it's a sudden pressure built upon that. I think a lot of people, you know, they might come into some money, have a year savings, and it's really easy to coast, you know, really waste that year. But I think, you know, pressure is great. You can always get another job. Um, even if it's just bar work or something just to cover the bills, whatever right. it may be. Right. Um, and then you, you've just got to leave your day job. If it's what you want to do and it's what you really want to do, you know, you don't need any more camera kit. You don't need to spend any more money on camera kit. It makes so little difference until you're sort of at a place where you're charging 10000 20000 a day. Uh, you know, if you've got an SLR, it'll be fine. But you've got to learn how to use it, learn how to light, and just, you know, go all in with it and just really commit I'd say. Yeah. At some point you do have to take the leap. And and I love that reminder. This is something that's come up even recently in the podcast, but it really is a great reminder. I've certainly had that personal experience, which is that at some point you just go for it. And like you said, the pressure, whether it's financial or maybe even relationships, those involved in that, that business or potential business, uh, wherever that pressure may be coming from it, it, it pushes you to work a little bit harder or even a lot harder and the results um, many times can show, and I think that's that's a great reminder. Kind of like kind of like what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation. That workout may not seem appealing, but know that on the other side of that could be something really, really great. And uh, you just have to trust that. But uh, talk to us a little bit about your your business's brand position. You're a commercial food photographer. I like the clarity of that statement on your website. Is that how you position yourself against other photographers in your market, or maybe more? Maybe the better question here is. Amongst food photographers, how do you position yourselves against them clearly as a brand? So this is something, when I read the question, I was like, yeah, that's on my to-do list. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's something I should really look at. I have never actively looked for work. I have sat back and waited for it to arrive, which is everything that everybody tells you not to do. Hmm. But it arrived, so I didn't bother doing anything about it. <laughs> I was like, well, work's cut, turning up. We're all happy. You wow. Know, let's, just, let's just chill. And I, sp- I have an agent as well, I okay. should add. Um, but my agent, contrary to popular belief, agents don't find you work. Hmm. They negotiate the work that comes in. Okay. Um, it's the art buyers that you need to sort of meet who get you the work. And most of my work comes because when I first started out in food, I should say, I got booked because somebody else messed it up. My first probably 20 campaigns I shot were because somebody else had messed it up. And I got the call up going, can you sort this out? So I live in a place called Leicester, which is an hour away from London, which is where everything happens. You can't get a last minute job done in London because everyone's busy. But I'm just close enough that if someone's messed up, they'll phone me. 
<laughs> so they're like, he'll be free. He's in Leicester. So <laughs> I used to get those phone calls going. Yeah, we had it in some big London studio and they didn't do what we wanted. Okay. So can you do it? And can you do it right now? I'm hmm. like, yeah, for sure. Hmm. So I guess we got in like that. And then a lot of it's just if you're free. You know, everyone needs their stuff shooting at the same time of year. There's only so many photographers. You've got your own contacts in each agency. People will book me because, one, I'm not in London. My studio is a warehouse with loading bays. I've got a kitchen. My girlfriend's a food stylist. It's a really good team to work with. So, you know, we sort of, we get a lot more done than I do working with a stylist because we know each other so well that she knows what I want it to look like. So there's no conversations of going, can you just change this? Can we just do this? Everything just sort of flows quite naturally. And then in terms of outside of London, there just aren't that many people who do what I do. Interesting. Okay. It's a real, you know, there's probably 20 food photographers in the UK. Wow. Sort of shooting big campaigns. You know, there's probably 10,000 food photographers. Sure. But there's only a few who you could turn up to to shoot a worldwide campaign. So it's a small pool that you're working with. And wow. If you know me, you'll either go, the job's for Scott or, do you know what? Scott's not up to this job. It's for this person here. And it, it, there's very little I can do apart from keep producing work, which makes people believe that I can do the jobs. So, you know, trying to second guess what the next round of ad campaigns might look like and doing some test shoots. Okay, look, do you know what? Interesting. We know what you're going to be doing. Let me throw it out there on social media. Let me yeah. put it on my website so you can see that I'm already, I know what trends are coming up. I know which props are going to be used. I know what sort of backgrounds are going to be used. I know the food that's going to be in fashion. And, I'm, you know, I'm already photographing it before you book the campaigns. I love that. Your your work, by the way, is is extremely compelling. I have to say, and and I mean, even just the the color that jumps off the screen. I'm I'm actually I've got your Instagram account pulled up, and again, for those of you listening in, we'll link to this in the show notes at boca b o k e h podcast dot com. But Scott's Instagram is s c o t t c h o u c i n o, and you've got to check it out. I mean, you actually have some incredible portrait work as well. But the food photography is just absolutely gorgeous. The colors are vibrant. And um, I, I know lighting is a whole conversation in of itself to play such a significant role in, in getting that type of color, but it's it's really, really beautiful work. So I have to give you props for that. Yeah, and, thank you very much. And you alluded to equipment earlier just a little bit, but I am curious. I mean, even in your profile picture, is that a, is that a Mamiya medium format camera you're shooting with? It is. It's sadly not mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool portrait um, nonetheless. So I rent most of my equipment for big shoots. Huh, okay. Um, I use a company over here called The Flash Center. And they're good because they are in the next big city next to me. And if anything goes horrendously wrong, we can get a taxi with a camera put into the back of it and sent over. So it's always a nice, you know, it's good to have relationships with these sorts of companies. You can go, I'm on a shoot. I've just dropped my camera. Can you please send one to me within the next hour? We're going to take an early lunch. Yeah. It's, a, <laughs> it's always a good way to be. But That's yeah, amazing. For, for the big jobs, we shoot with the phase one cameras. Okay. So I'm curious if, if that's what you're, I mean, it's nice to be able to to do that. And of course, to work that into the budget for the shoot. Do you, do you have a favorite personal camera that you pull out from time to time to shoot with? I do not. I don't like cameras, to be honest. I have no interest. I don't, I don't get excited. You know when people are like sitting there going, have you seen the latest reviews and rumors? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm still shooting on the same 5D Mark II that I started with sure. for day-to-day work. I've never upgraded them. They've got numbers on them. One, two, three, four, for example. So I know which body's which when they break and need repairs. But yeah. I, I don't get excited by cameras. Well, and the gear at this point has gotten so good that there's little need to to upgrade um, year yeah, after I mean, year. I get sent a lot of kit from people to have a look at. I got sent the 5D Mark IV, set it up next to the 5D Mark II, shot some images, couldn't tell the difference, so I yeah. sent it back. 
Yeah. Like the raw files look different when you open them, but the end product looks exactly the same after post-production. Interesting. And I was like, meh. <laughs> probably save myself $3,000 and just not spend it on a camera. <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> far more interesting things to spend my money on. But um, yeah, I mean, it just, it's never been anything that's interested me. The only thing I like about my kit is that it's all the same. So I have no interest in learning to use a new camera system. I don't want to have to learn how to use a Hasselblad over a Phase 1 or a Nikon over a Canon, not because I don't think they're better or as good as. I just think I've been shooting on the 5D Mark II since it came out. I know exactly what it's going to look like after post-production when I press the button because I've done it so many times. Mm. I know exactly what the colors will be like, what the yeah. exposure is going to be like, what I can and can't do it to in post. And, you know, all these little things. And it's just, I think that's so much more important than having the latest kit. That, that's really true. I can, uh, it's been since 2012 that I shot my last wedding as a full-time business owner and I could still pick up a Nikon to this day. That's what I shot with all those years. And it would feel like I was just shooting yesterday because you do begin to develop a certain muscle memory and awareness of where the menu uh, options are and you can work yep. it very, very quickly. And that, that is so significant. We, we have to be, um, to be able to use that gear to your earlier point. I mean, when it comes to technique and being able to use our equipment effectively and efficiently, both there is something to be said for consistency. And, and so I like that. And I also like the practical practicality of this mentality of, this is just a tool. Um, the idea that I have to upgrade this thing constantly and live for the excitement of that. I think there's something else going under, going on behind the scenes there that may need to be addressed at, at a deeper level. Um, it's certainly fun. I mean, I, I like gear, but at some point there's something to be said for saving that money, as you pointed out, and just focusing on developing the craft with the tools that you have. And I think that's a good reminder for all of us. I want to go ahead and get into to our primary topic here. And I want to, of course, respect your time. We've got a few minutes to chat about our main topic today. But um, I've been saying for years, and I, I think I've talked about it probably multiple times at this point on the podcast, the, the significance of or the reality of which there is a quite a significant market in the U.S. for less expensive photography, portrait photography, wedding photography. You may be able to speak about commercial photography as well. Uh, but I recently saw an article that you wrote for F-Stoppers, and of course, we'll link to this in the show notes. But I want to read a couple of quotes from it um, because this is quite compelling. You said, there's no shame in shooting 100 weddings a year for $300 and delivering just JPEGs for those who cannot afford more. It is a service that is wanted and that actual, actually takes a lot of skill and hard work to achieve. Some clients do not need any Leibovitz-level photography. Some need an intern to take some iPhone images. Others have a few hundred dollars and a smaller number have a few thousand. Then at the extreme end, a very small number have a million or so as the images and are so important to their brand. It's important to know what your client needs. If they go for someone cheaper, that photographer hasn't price cut you. They simply offer a different service at a different price point. You are not the photographer for that particular client, much like Whole Foods isn't the grocery store for me. Walmart didn't price cut them. They offer cheaper food. and I'm happy to eat them as I spend my money more on eating out. I can't cook. A little humorous note there at the end. But um, I, I really liked your perspective in this article. And I don't think enough people are talking about this, this simple reality. I'm curious, first of all, what, what motivated you even to write an article on this topic? So most of my F-Stoppers articles are when I see something on my Sunday peruse of F-Stoppers that really infuriates me in the comments. Hmm. So <laughs> somebody getting really angry and then realizing that a lot of people have the same view yeah, yeah, and that it is completely misinformed. Hmm. So I find that, and I'm going to do some massive stereotypes here, which is really bad. 
it'll be male photographers who are in the latest equipment who are part-time make a bit of money now and again and photograph models or what they call models are complaining and it's a very specific demographic and you know it's they're shooting mostly female models they're not getting paid to do it they'll do the odd birthday party wedding perhaps some headshots for a company for a little bit of money but they'll feel that you know i'm turning up with eight thousand dollars or pounds worth of gear and people aren't respecting and these people are price cutting me and i think there's two things to this one is their business model doesn't work and it's great that they've got several thousand dollars worth of kit but it it wouldn't make any difference whether they had a hundred dollars their work just isn't good enough or isn't correct for the field they're trying to work in sure and they're then getting angry at somebody else coming in cheaper with worse gear and i think you know a a lot of it is all these people with you know just entry-level cameras coming in it's like you could do a lot with an entry-level camera i had a really big ad campaign which i won't mention the name of because i don't think they know what happened but my courier didn't turn up with all my equipment I had a courier full of bronze color lighting turning up for a big shoot. Yeah. And I had to nip into this cheap camera shop. I bought a Vivitar flash, a PC sync cable and a four frown sheet through umbrella. Wow. And I shot a campaign that cost a lot of money and nobody batted an eyelid. <laughs> and, um, but I'm sure some, you know, photographers who are in the angry brigade walked past to be like, can't believe he's getting paid that much money and he's shooting on a Vivitar flash. And, uh, you know, that's not what people are paying for. And I think it's important to understand that, there are different sides to the photography market. There is the the individual buying a photographer who wants a service. There are the photography magazines and photography websites selling equipment to photographers. And then there is the commercial side of ad campaigns and advertising agencies. And I think the confusion comes about when the people who are just consuming all of this information from the photography magazines, the photography websites, about what you need to be a pro, what you should have, the equipment, the cameras, and all they're seeing all day is camera review, camera review, camera review, and they're $10,000 in, and then they're wondering why somebody else has come and gone, I'll take pictures, doesn't care about cameras, and is doing work for less money because their overheads are less. And there's this like, there's a misunderstanding as to what people are looking for here, I think. Mm. Yeah, um, well, the, the reality is the, the market is just the market. And I love, I love the analogy that you use, the, the Whole Foods versus Walmart. You don't hear people complaining about the fact that there are different grocery stores, for example, uh, that offer food and services at different price points, because the reality is, of course, the market needs both options or wants both options. You don't hear Ferrari complaining about Ford selling a $15,000 car because that's not their market. They don't, they're not concerned about that. And of course, we, the, the, the list of analogies or comparisons just goes on and on and on. The market Absolutely. is just simply the market. It is going to function the way that it's going to function. And really the question at the end of the day, I think that that's where the conversation that needs to be had is, and the more intelligent one at that is, how can we best serve the market as it exists? And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with discussing the significance of or the value of our photography, but no said value is going to change the reality of somebody's income. And that has to actually be considered. If we're actually looking at this as a business, that has to be considered. So maybe just kind of sum up your, your perspective on the, on the basic economy, the premise behind this article, if you don't mind. So I think, in the, I mean, I don't know what the American economy is like compared to the British one for photography, but people don't value photography as much as photographers do is a general statement. Mm. And my, you know, my view on that, it's just not the case. I mean, I have clients 
specifically saying we want to make sure that we respect your artwork, we want to make sure that you feel comfortable with how much you've been paid. There's a lot of conversations that go in first to make sure that I feel like I'm well looked after by a lot of my clients. And that's what I receive. Whereas I think a lot of people feel that that's just not happening out there and that's not the case, but it is. But the difference is you have to be going to the right clients if you want that sort of thing. Now, if I wanted to set up a business and I wanted to be more of an office type-based person, I would set up photo studios in every shopping mall around the country doing family portraits for £10 of the system yeah. and having photographers out there working on minimum wage. Because why shouldn't somebody who wants to spend £10 have a portrait? Because somebody else's ego says that they're worth more money. Mm. I think it's a very... I think it's been exasperated as well by the internet. And I think that a lot of people go, yeah, I'm worth that money. I've invested all this money into my craft and all the rest of it. And it's just not the case. You know, it's, I pay people weekly to take photos for me and behind the scenes images and all the rest of it. And to be honest, that service is worth no more than 150 pounds a day to me. Yeah, It just, it just isn't. And they might be a 700 pound a day ability photographer, but for me, for what those images are going to be used for, for an Instagram post, you know, a bit of information sent back to the client. Cause sometimes I like to be able to do a slideshow at the end of it going, here's what we did for the day. It's worth 150 pounds. And you know, that that's just what it's worth. And it doesn't matter what people think about that, but that is what it's worth. And that's all I'm ever going to pay for it. And I think, you know, trying to find, it's making sure that you're happy with what you're receiving, I suppose. And if you're not happy, it's trying to find out why you're not happy. Is it that, you're trying to pitch a service to a client who doesn't need it or you're actually not as good as you think you are. And that's why you're getting the work that you're getting. Because for sure, when I first started out, I thought I was amazing. <laughs> you know, I was, I was like, nobody can take band shoots as good as I can. Yeah. And now looking back on my work, I'm like, God, I wish I could delete that from that person's blog. It's got my <laughs> bloody watermark on the bottom of it. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's really difficult and it's, uh, uh, you know, everyone's got their own skill set, their own place and what they want to do. And, you know, it's, it's really important to recognize that. And I just think if you want to do, you know, be complaining about cheap photographers, be an expensive one hmm. because th- th- there aren't enough high end photographers. If you're charging $500 a day for portraits charge, you know, charge 2000, 4,000 a day. And all of a sudden you'll find there's a whole different clientele out there. Right. And you've obviously got to service their needs, but, you know, do that instead. Don't try and fight with the cheap people because you, you can't. The race to the bottom will always be won by whoever's got the most photographers working under one company's name because the scales of economy are just obscene. It's very, you very know? true. And and uh, you make a great point there, which is that trying to compete on price is just a nightmarish existence as a business model. So um, this conversation certainly isn't meant to encourage that as much as just perspective, uh, bring to light perspective, which is, I know that the U.S. market in 17, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting ready to look at the, the 2018 numbers. It literally just came out at uh, theweddingreport.com. But at least in the U.S. In, in 2017, roughly 75%, 70 to 75% or so of uh, weddings photographed in the U.S. were photographed for $2,000 and below. Yep. And then the next 15% or so, 15 to 20% are from the two to four range. And then, of course, yeah, everything is, is above that. That's, those are estimates. Again, if, and we'll link to this in the show notes. Theweddingreport.com has some really great data that will lend perspective. You know, instead of, you mentioned that the angry brigade, brigade earlier, 
um, it, it seems as though a lot of times people just enjoy the, the significance that they feel in joining a, a rant, a collective rant about a particular topic. And that's certainly the case in the photo industry. And it's not, it's not a rant that is informed by actual data and information. And again, the reality, as we pointed out earlier, which is that the market is going to decide. You mentioned deciding how much something is worth to you. This is something the market does on a daily basis. And that's just the reality of it. So the question again is how do we function? We have to figure out how to best function within that simple reality rather than getting angry about it. That's certainly not productive. It's not helpful. One of the major arguments actually that that you tend to hear against photographers who charge less for the services that the cheaper prices are going to undercut the market. What's your response to that idea? So I know that in my city, for example, that I am, I charge considerably more than anybody else, but I don't consider anybody else to be undercutting me. I don't feel that anybody, you know, anyone who charges less than me, they're they're not undercutting me. They're offering something completely different. Hmm. And I, I find it really bizarre because some of these people, you know, might be charging a thousand dollars a day less than me, and they'll be complaining about somebody who's charging fifty dollars less than them. And it's it's a very bizarre. I don't know. It's you know, I mean, my price is dictated by what ad agencies expect to pay. So there's been no clever workings out for my, you know, my day rate is my day rate because that's what the day rate is for a photographer who does what I do. Hmm, okay. Give or take a hundred pounds, we all charge the same. There's not a great deal in it. But I then have to work out my business backwards from that. So it's what's my day rate? How many days do I want to shoot a year? Right. How do I service that day rate with, you know, the studio, the equipment, my overheads? And do I receive the salary at the end of that that I want to receive to, you know, for me, not have to work in an office? And I go, right, that all fits in nicely. That's my business plan. Um, But I don't, you know, most of my, I'd say 75% of the inquiries I get, I don't end up working with. They'll go with someone cheaper. And I don't see it as work I've lost. I just see it as clients who weren't mine. Um, Much like the ones who did book me, there was no way they're going to book somebody who charges half what I charge because the risk for them isn't worth it. If they've already put in £100,000 of work into an ad campaign, they're not going to try and save £1,000 for the sake, you know. It's just not worth the risk for those clients. So I think it's just, you know, there's clients out there for everybody and they're either for you or they're not. And when people phone up, I, you know, before I used to say yes to everything, I got myself in some right mess. And, um, you know, I'd have clients who had completely different expectations to me or I'd have different expectations to them. You know, they'd be expecting 20 shots completing in a day, whereas I'd be aiming for eight. And, you know, it's a very different world. But I think it's just knowing exactly who you are, what you do. And when the client's not right, just saying no. And it's, you know, I, I say no to most phone calls that come in because I can tell that, they'll be disappointed in what they get for the money they spend. Hmm. Whereas they'd be much happier spending half and receiving something different, which they won't be able to tell the difference between. And that's no sort of, you know, slight on them. It just, it doesn't matter to them. It's not that important. The return on investment just isn't there. Right. Whereas for some other clients, it's got to be perfect because they're looking at turning over a hundred million pounds on the back of this photograph. And if it's not perfect, that could affect them and they might only get 70 million pounds. Wow. That's a big difference. Yeah. So it's, you know, and you just got to be really honest about what your photography is doing for the client. So if you're taking a family portrait for clients, you know, what, what's that worth to them? Is it worth $50? Is it worth $500? How much does that client make? What's their salary? And then, you know, if you're servicing really rich people, does your style of photography and do you as a person represent what they're expecting? You know, is it, 
is it all in cohesion to what everyone's expecting? Everyone's got to be happy with what they receive. Right. You've got to do your day's work and go, yeah, that was worth it for the money. You shouldn't be doing your day's work and going, did a fast one there. I've just made an absolute fortune for doing next to nothing because that's never a good place to be in because you'll be found out eventually. Yeah, yeah. You also shouldn't be finishing your day's work going, God, they've run me absolutely to the bone. You know, I've only made this much money. I'm absolutely exhausted. That was awful. You know, they're both clients you should be saying no to and just going, you know, this is where I sit. This is what I produce. These are my clients. We'll service these guys, the cheaper guys. They're servicing these guys, the more expensive people. They're servicing these. I've made the mistake in the past of taking on a job that had a really high paycheck associated to it. I'd never been so out of depth in my depth in my life. Hmm. I felt so uncomfortable. I didn't know what was going on. The, the level of everything was just, it was like one of my photo shoots. It'd be like a beginner fog for turning up to one of my jobs. The difference was that great. Wow. And I was so out of my depth. And I just went, I should have said no to that. You know, it was just, it wasn't my job. It wasn't for me. Somebody else should have had that. It's not my work. And, you know, you just have to let it go and let someone else do the work. Well, in in addition to the the reality of how the market functions and awareness of that, um, the, the very pragmatic mentality that you're bringing to the picture here, which is know who you are and what you want specifically for your business. I mean, that in and of itself, I think is, incredible advice that will help photographers, first of all, relax just a little bit, and then be able to comfortably charge what it is that they need to charge. And it is dependent on what they want, which then, of course, translates to the type of business model that they put together and the, the target clients that they're going after. Um, this is These are all things that we've talked about in the podcast multiple times over, but that the simple reality of knowing who you are and what you want and what you need uh, letting that drive the price point, it really uncomplicates things significantly. And, and I love the pragmatism of that. Let's talk just here at the end, very, again, practically about photographers who might be interesting and act, interested in actually going after what is the largest segment of the market, especially in weddings here, but in, in general, weddings, portrait, uh, or potentially otherwise. How can they do so and, and make a, or create a scalable business. What, what would you encourage them? What ideas would you can encourage them to consider if they want to create a business model that serves that segment of the market? So first of all, I'd say, if this is something you're seriously looking at doing, you need to be good at systems. Hmm. And, you know, systems are the key because what you're looking at doing here is high volume, you know, low quality, not as in bad photos, but it's going to have to be a lower quality because of the, you know, just, the numbers won't set up otherwise. Right. So you've got to have systems to work with this. So if you're shooting, it might be a case that you only, you know, you delete bad photos as you go. So when you put the card in, the card is JPEGs only, and that's going straight to the clients. And a lot of folks go, oh, you have to edit your photos. You have to do this. It's like, you don't. You absolutely don't. If that's not the service you're charging for, so if I handed over a JPEG, I'd be in a, you know, people would be like, what's this? Well, you know, it's... <laughs> The colors are still wrong. Yeah. But if you only pay, if you're paying less money, you have to deliver less of a service mm. because otherwise you'll burn out. You'll do great at the start. You're getting loads of books and stuff. I'm like, great. I'm getting a thousand dollars worth of wedding photography for $300. This yeah. is brilliant. Yeah. Two years down the line, you'll be having a nervous breakdown. Absolutely. So you've got to fully understand exactly where the limitations of this are going to lie. You don't want to be going spending all your money on kit. You know, you want to be having, buying secondhand entry level cameras. Mm-hmm. Because there is no benefit to having an expensive camera if you're servicing the low end, low end of the market. There's, the return on investment just isn't there. So it's just trying to keep a real tight rein on the numbers. So anybody who's thinking they want to get into the market, 
starting at the lower end isn't a way to get to the high end. Because I think a lot of people make that mistake and that's where the frustration comes in. They'll start off going, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to start off cheap. But that's not the way to do it. If you want to work as a high-end photographer or mid-end photographer, you need to work yourself up to that level and then go straight into that level of work because it's a completely different business. There is no way that I could run a city-wide nightclub photography service where we have photographers in every nightclub every night working for £60 each. I don't have the skill set to run that. I don't have the people skills. I don't have the computer systems. And likewise, someone who runs, who shoots in a nightclub for £50, they won't be able to turn up to an ad campaign and have the skills to do that. It's two completely different jobs, although it's still photography. Right. It's a different job, like completely different job. It's like, you know, personal finance tax returns compared to business tax returns. It's two very different skill sets. So I think it's having those systems, keeping track of the numbers and working out everything which is scalable. So if you're going to need an accountant anyway for one photographer, why not have 10 photographers using the same accountant or going into the same books? You know, if you're going to have an editor to edit the jobs, why not have one editor to edit everybody's work? So you're only paying one person's salary rather than having a photographer edit at the end of the day, you know, really utilizing people's skill sets. Yeah, this is good. I, you know, on, on a practical level, at the end of the day, the, the potential overwhelm uh, of running a business, which requires whatever it might be, 500 portrait sessions a year or 300 weddings a year, um, in order to be able to generate the living desired, that idea in and of itself is what probably would drive many photographers away. And I like that you started with the significance of systems. I mean, systems, we, we talk about this topic endlessly on the Boca podcast because it's relevant to any and everyone, but it's particularly relevant to someone who is running a a business which is driven by high volume. And so you do yep. have to be one who either is great at systems to begin with or who is able to, to identify and hire somebody who is great at developing systems so that you can run your business as efficiently as possible um, in order to maximize margin. That's really, really huge. And then you, you pointed out the significance of keeping track of numbers. Now, again, all of us should be doing this as photography business owners, but even more so those who are shooting at low low. Uh, or charging less and shooting at high volume because you have to make the numbers work in order to generate the margin and to make the living that you desire. So that in and of itself is really important. And it starts with accounting, certainly, but you need to also figure out efficient ways to get things done so that you are able to yep. take, take advantage of the services in a way that will still let you make the, the margin on the back end. So there's that piece. And then a, a scalable workflow is also really important. And this and somewhat ties into the significance of systems, but being intelligent in the way that, that you're managing the incoming images. If editing has to happen, how do you do that most efficiently, most cost effectively, the delivery process? How do you go about that? Managing the books, managing communication and admin, the systems have to be there in order for you to be able to function at a higher volume. And, uh, and it's really important to consider that, that scalable workflow in order to make this work. These are some pretty significant talking points. And honestly, we could, we could probably spend hours breaking down in much more detail. But I, I'm glad that we've at least begun this conversation, Scott. And, and I really appreciate you making time to, to help us get that started. Can you just reiterate where our listeners can find you online, both your website and, and social media as well? Yeah, yeah so um, I, my website is uh, SCOTT chouciino.com um i do have a blog on there but since writing for f-stoppers 
by the time I've done my weekly episodes article, I'm so exhausted from writing. Yeah. Doesn't really get that. <laughs> it's normally if we've got a workshop coming up or something, there'll be a quick like, I should probably tell people about this if someone turns up. Um, so I'm on there. I'm on Instagram. That's the only social media platform I use. And again, it's just my name, Scott Chathinho. So Scott, C-H-O-U-C-I-N-O. And I mostly use the stories, to be honest, just to show people what's going on in shoots because I realize it's not something that everyone gets to see. And, you know, some, some people find, especially with the food styling stuff, which is actually nothing to do with what I do, people find that really interesting. So I try and show lots of that, what's going on. That's cool. Well, and, and again, your work is beautiful. Major props to you. We'll link to these in the show notes, Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com. For those of you listening in, make sure to take advantage of, of the resource, which the show notes certainly are. Uh, Haley does a great job putting this all together, but um, make sure that you look at the show notes for today's episode. Thanks again, Scott, for both the, the article on F-Stoppers. We'll link to that in the show notes, but also your perspective today in conversation. Really appreciate you making time for the Boca podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Boca podcast today. Will you let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or maybe in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast, maybe suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My direct email is nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com dot com.